Hey everybody, welcome back to this moment. We are your transatlantic bridge connecting Stockholm, Sweden to Harlem, USA. And as you know, it is hosted by myself, Jason Timbuktu Diakite, and my dear brother, co-host with the most chef extraordinaire, Marcus Samuelson. Now, a few months back, Marcus and I interviewed scholar Tobias Hubinet, who for the past 30 years has tirelessly worked in academia as an activist, journalist, author, and advocate for social justice in Sweden, specifically for BIPOC people living in this country. Right now, there's a lot going on in Sweden. For those of you who don't know, a right-wing anti-Muslim politician decided to go on a Quran burning spree. Here on this moment, we condemn these actions and support all of our Muslim brothers and sisters. It would seem this is the right time to release this interview, all things considered. So let's jump right in. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Now, what we was trying to say, just before we got started a while ago, and we're getting ready to do a little walk. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, Dr. Tobias Hubinet. Highly recommended from Jason's father. Yeah. <laughs> number one, Ichiban, number one. Thank you so much, and thank you for inviting me. Take us back, Tobias, um, to, um, you know, your journey. Where did your journey in Sweden start? When, when did you arrive here, and how, uh, how was it growing up? So I was adopted to Sweden in 1972, and I was about eight months old. I am born in South Korea, and I grew up and arrived in Motala, mm-hmm. which is a small industrial town. Uh, close to Linköping in the mid-southern part of Sweden. And I had a yeah, pretty much typical Swedish, uh, also I would say working class upbringing. And I also had a sister from, from South Korea. That's pretty much my background. So, um, you know, we were the black family. We were the black kid family in, on our block. So were the other adopted kids in your class, in your school, on the block. Tell us about your identity for you and your sister, you know, growing up in the 70s. How was that? Yeah, it was a very homogeneous city at that time. Uh, if we talk about, uh, yeah, well, BIPOC or people of color, or Swedes of color. Uh, so we were pretty much alone in our uh, district and also at school. But there were other adopted kids from Korea, Ethiopia, okay. India, Colombia, etc. Uh, although, well, we just saw them on on, on the streets mm-hmm. in the yeah in downtown, basically. So it was a very very uh, white upbringing, uh, as most of us I think who 
mm-hmm. uh, came to Sweden in the 70s. That's our experience. And w- was that something, Tobias, that you would reflect over? Do you remember reflecting over that as a child or how, how you would reflect over the fact that I mean, you and your sister didn't look like your parents and like uh, most of your neighbors or uh, uh, your classmates, etc.? Yeah, well, it was lonely, basically. And sometimes, yeah, Mm -hmm. both me and my sister were teased uh, by the other white kids. And uh, there was no language to speak about racism in Sweden at that time. So it was basically seen as some mean kids saying bad, yeah, bad words to you, right? And so, yeah, there was basically no discussion on, on racism at that time. Uh, so it was a very isolating and, and, and lonely uh, existence, basically. I remember like my mom like giving us strengths. And if someone says this, you should say that. Like, what was the discussion at home? Because sometimes the most confident can come from the whole household. And then you try that stuff out at school the next day. And it may, it may, not, may not work out, but at least it may work. It, it, it may, may not. not. Yeah. How was it, the conversation at home? Yeah. Yeah, I've read your memoir, Marcus, so I know about your adoptive parents and that they actually encouraged you, right? Uh, uh, but my parents were not really like that. They were not that conscious. So when we came back and told that other kids teased us, well, of course, yeah, our parents were against that, totally against that. But they also said that it's better to maybe, yeah, forget it or these people are, these kids are just stupid or something like that. Uh, although I do remember, actually, and I think that's a strong memory, which I still bears within me, that me and my adoptive mom, uh, we were at, a, I don't know, maybe a supermarket. I was about nine years old and there were some, yeah, mean white kids a bit older than, than me who just came up to me when I went there together with my mother and said something about, yeah, well, you know, what people can say when you're Asian. Uh, racial slurs, basically. And I remember actually that uh, my mother came really upset and, and told something to those kids who just stopped shouting. And I think that uh, so there was some, some I mean, there, there was support in that sense, but otherwise not so much understanding, unfortunately. Yeah, of course, they lacked the, the, the language and the tools to, to describe yeah. and, and, and deal with these problems as well. Exactly. Uh, that's how it was in the 70s. In the black community, you always taught to stand up and you fight back. Were you drawn to sort of the, what was taught kind of like from the African-American community about civil rights movement? Yeah, well, uh, what I had was the public library. Uh, so I could borrow books about the racial struggles uh, in history. So I, I did actually read about the, the African-American civil rights movement and about the, the, the fate of the European Jews, about the colonialism, etc., European colonialism and imperialism. So I came into contact with that history and that, of course, that present also uh, quite early, actually, by, yeah, by having access to that uh, public library, which is a, a blessing that Sweden has this huge system of 
still uh, tax-funded public libraries. For all our listeners out there, I'd just like to say that Tobias Hubinet is one of my dad's big, big heroes. Boyaka, because in Boyaka. 2014, <laughs> so Marabuko Diakite rates you, uh, Tobias, very, very high. No, stop, know. stop, uh, stop. You can't and, just and, say that. <laughs> First of all, Jason is not even highly rated <laughs> by Pops. Well, I struggle. I struggle. I struggle. I struggle. You know? This is big. Uh, sometimes, sometimes my dad's like, this I, I really, you know, this, uh, he can highlight some stuff that I do, but, but, you know, when, when in conversations with yes. my dad for, uh, the past 10, 15 wow. years, uh, your name is one of those that always comes up. But for my dad, of course, when you published the Afrophobia report, mm. uh, in 2014, yes. was it that really like canonized you in my dad's eyes? So, so you have academic credentials and that list is very long, but you also, uh, I have the feeling at least in your young age, driven by kind of a polit- political pathos as well. So tell us a bit about how that started. How did you, f- what set yeah. you off on that? Path? Yeah. So, uh, about uh, around 1990, I think, I, I, I moved to Uppsala, and that's the kind of, yeah, second biggest university in Sweden apart from Lund. It's like Cambridge and Oxford in, in Sweden, basically, the oldest universities. Mm. And I started to, to study languages, foreign languages. And at that time, in the early 1990s, there was also an economic crisis, and it's also the end of the Cold War, when a new mm. word is born, right? Mm. And very yeah, few people at that time were kind of confused what will happen now, etc. And, and suddenly there was this, uh, I would say, kind of yeah, almost eruption of of, of uh, racism in Sweden, and mm. and not mm. not just I mean normal racism. It was basically neo-Nazism. Mm. So mm. that's what I encountered when I was a young adult, and many others yeah, at Are we my talking age, Mutala right? Or at, uh, in Uppsala, Uppsala, yes, in Uppsala, yeah. Uh, early 1990s. Mm. Uh, so there were a lot of Nazis basically on the streets of Sweden, yeah. including in Uppsala. Uh, yeah. So at that time, I was a part of the anarchist anti-fascist movement of Sweden, which yeah. was pretty yeah. strong yeah. at that time, mm. um, which was also kind of organized in most of the biggest cities of Sweden. Uh, and this is also the time when, when uh, the Sweden Democrats is, it's a very small party, of course, at that time, but it is slowly growing. And that, mm. that party became the main voice for that eruption of, of, of um, uh, yeah, racism and neo-Nazism that Sweden encountered. And which wasn't just about the subculture, because there were a lot of people who were actually killed mm. at that time. Mm. Mm. There were mm. about a dozen murders. Mm. Black Swedes, there were other non-white Swedes, there were... Um, also white Swedes? Uh, yeah, male, gay, gay men especially, mm. yeah, were killed. Mm. About three murders, I think, when it comes to gay men. Uh, and there were others who were really badly uh, hurt. Uh, mm. So it was really a, a, an extremely violent time. Um, and I was a part had, of that. Uh, we had uh, we had Lawsomanen, yeah. the the serial killer who was on the loose between, I think he was captured early 1992, but during yes. 1991 he was uh, targeting uh, Swedes people yes. in Sweden of color and and trying yeah. to kill them. Luckily he he failed in in most of attempts, but uh, succeeded. Yeah. I think at least one, once. One yeah. Iranian guy. Yeah. 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 
I mean, Marcus, you must remember in the early 90s, the thing that like skinheads, I had skinheads in my school. It was like, it was like, oh, you listen to hip hop? Well, I'm a skinhead. It was a subculture that was not something that teachers brought up. And also early 90s, one of the biggest bands in Sweden was Ultima Mm -hmm. Thule, which is, I would say, a white supremacist uh, national or at least a nationalist band. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, of course, in Gothenburg, skinhead culture was huge. I mean, running from the skinheads or, you know, was part of... Growing up, you know what I mean. Like it was part of everyday, everyday life, life, right? And mm-hmm. you knew which subway. Yeah. You, you knew which. Um, you know, sometimes you know if you took the bus and you're on the. You know, especially going out to Patle, if you were the only one black or BIPOC, you knew exactly like I had to sit up front, not in the back, because you have to get out for, for really, really fast. So it was mm. all this whole system, which you can exactly say it's like it was. It was a lot around music, right? So. These were people that was just, it was a subculture that was basically accepted. And I remember just, I was always in fear of the skinheads, not when I was in the city, because I was always, we were a lot of friends and we were all BIPOC friends. But Mm -hmm. once you came out to the suburbs, uh, and I have always like two different routes, how to get from the bus to home, you know, and uh, no, skinheads was part of, of, of growing up. And obviously now it's more, much more sophisticated. Now it's, you know, through different parties and, and different pro- types of chat groups and stuff like that. And I mean, for you, for you as well, Marcus, you don't want to end up on the wrong bus and go to Kungel yeah. because even down in, even down in Skåne, we knew that yeah. there were Nazis in Kungel. Yeah. No, absolutely. Know. But Tobias, you have structured Sweden almost into three phases, right? What are these, mm. you know, from old to mm. good? Can you just break this down to us? Yeah. So what you're referring to now is the book that uh, is titled White Melancholia, which I co-wrote together with uh, Katrin Lundström, who's a Swedish sociologist. And what we basically try to do is to, we, we try to understand how Sweden's and the Swedes' attitude to race basically has changed uh, during the last, let's say, 100 years from mm. outright uh, racial thinking or kind of an ob- ob- obsession with race even, mm. uh, which uh, marked most of the 19- 1900s actually up until the, let's say, 1970, uh, and which was basically about this idea that the white Swedes are the whitest of all people on earth. Mm. And that belief made... Sweden basically developed a certain kind of race cult. Mm. Uh, and what is, I mean, the dark side of this is also the, the race hygienic measures that the, the Swedish state at that time uh, were behind. And after that, there was this uh, sudden change in when it comes to the attitude of race. And that's what actually my latest book, Adopted in English, mm. Adopterad in Swedish, is about because it was about the, ad- the coming of the adoptees. Mm. So when the first uh, adoptees of color came to Sweden uh, in the mid-1960s, and I think you were one of them, uh, one of the other ones, Marcus, uh, I came a bit later. Uh, uh, that, that, when that happened, Sweden was really super white. So there was this debate in the 1960s if it was a good or bad thing that the white Swedes would take in those children because there were... There was the opponents who at that time said that this is bad, actually, because we have kept our nation racially pure. And we want Mm. to continue to do that because these children, when they become adults, they will 
mix with us. And that's a bad thing. So they actually talked explicitly about race mixing. And then there was the other side who won the debate. And which uh, and, and the fact that they won uh, made Sweden into actually the biggest adopter adopting country in the West or in the world. And, and that changed everything. So when that side of the debate won, Sweden slowly changed its attitude to race and developed into, well, most probably at least, the West's most uh, anti-racist nation. Um, and then um, now, now we are actually where we discussed in the 1990s, because that's the third change. That's when something new starts to happen. Uh, when uh, this cherished Swedish anti-racist that was born in the wake of, of um, the coming of the adoptees and later on the coming of the refugees, of course, uh, that's when um, something starts to happen, when something uh, turns into a crisis, basically, which uh, from about 2000 and onwards evolves into what we call white melancholia. And that's the state of the Swedish nation today. And that, that is what we think, at least, explains the rise of the Sweden Democrats. What does the white melancholia phase, what, what is significant uh, about that? Uh, it, it's the, it's a deep sorrow, uh, and it's so deep, so it's more than sorrow. That's what, why we use the term melancholia, which is a term from... Yeah, Freud and psychoanalysis, etc., mm, mm. which basically means that you have um, incorporated your your uh, grief so strongly, so it's, it has become a part of your identity. And the grief comes from two facts. Number one, that Sweden is not super white anymore. Uh, the demographic composition of Sweden has changed. The streets of Stockholm or also Gothenburg and even more Malmö look like... And e- maybe and, even Motala. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah, New yeah. York or yeah, Los Angeles or London or Paris. And the second uh, uh, reason for this grief is also the waning of this idea that Sweden is the, the most anti-racist white nation on earth. So it's a kind of a double-edged sword, basically. Uh, and this melancholia um, uh, is, according to our analysis, um, uh, what basically uh, structures um, the, the, the psyche of, of, you can call it the white psyche of the Swedish nation of today. And it is very much uh, this grief that um, the Sweden Democrats or, this, or the people who vote for that party, it's become a part of their identity, basically. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. I think a lot of this has to do with uh, Sweden's role or not role in the Second World War, right? Which is unsettling for a lot of Sweden in the modern context, right? So in one way, we have guilt that, you know, rest of Europe was bombed, Sweden's kept up, and a lot of Sweden's economy starts from, you know, we can jumpstart our economy in 1946 in a way that other European countries can. What do we need? We need workers. So we go to Europe and get guest workers from the 50s, you know, whether it's former Yugoslavia, Spain, etc. right? Then at the same time, two things happen, the adoptees, 60s and 70s. The other thing that happens is obviously the huge influence from both Soviet Union, but also from America, right? Where culture, mm, culture comes in, yeah. right? Where music, television, mm, what the mm. desire and aspirations is like. And when both of those borders are open, so, yeah, you know, I remember my parents talking about going to the park and watching these great American, very often black bands coming in and the culture was absolutely so foreign from an average Swede, but it was a desire to be connecting with that, right? And when you have guest workers that essentially stays, first of all, Sweden, which most people don't understand, even in Sweden, we have very few immigrants. We like to say we have immigrants, but we don't. We have a blend, we actually have refugees, right? That doesn't mean, you know, but it's a vastly different, like I am an immigrant to the United States, by choice, I come to America, which means I start very often in a middle-class background, and I can go upwards from there, right? But when you come as a refugee, your completely, completely starting point is very, very different. So that gives more opportunity to integrate. It's also very different, right? So I think this combination of not understanding that actually we don't have immigrants, 
we actually have majority refugees, which then social economic refugees and, and migrants, like, yeah, yeah, which then social economically, migrants, which comes yeah. with spirituality, and how do we integrate? It's very, very different. It's different to be a Dutch. Yeah. Uh, architect and move to Stockholm because he's going to be an architect <laughs> in Stockholm as well. Absolutely. Right? So these two things. The third thing that happens for me, which is like a huge part, which I think is really start to something else, is Olaf Palme gets killed, right? Our prime minister get killed in the 80s, right? Which for me is really rips off the band that Sweden is this naive, super open country where there's no violence. The, the pr prism through that hor horrific murder really opens up the door like, wow, we're not as prepared to be in this new world. You know, the fact that our prime minister could just walk and go to the movies and, the, you know, is really without, without bodyguards, which yeah. is a really beautiful concept, but it's mm -hmm. also very naive because that's just not how the world at that point mm -hmm. operates. Mm -hmm. And it takes us basically a whole generation mm -hmm. to fundamentally understand that, wow, we're mm -hmm. not prepped. Mm -hmm. And although we Swedes with all this great education and open-mindedness, we are not prepped for the new world when it comes to diversity, when it comes to mm -hmm. uh, how violent the world is, right? And even through the prism of all of Palmer's murder, you know, you can also see there's incredible bias in terms of racism there. Like, yep, we're just going to put mm. the Picoco from Turkey. They're going to be the ones, not with any fact base, but actually, you know, that's what it is, right? So it's like, it's mm. a pris those three stages for me sets up this moment. And of course, then when the wars are happening in, in Europe, impacts not United States at the same way it impacts Europe. You know, when, when the Iran-Iraq war happens, when Somalia happens, it impacts Sweden, the, the Balkans, Balkans happen. It happens what people in the West, like in America, don't understand. Like when America goes to war, it impacts America in one way, but they ship people over there, whatever there is, who it really also impacts is Europe in a massive way, which never fundamentally is understood on this side of the world. Tobias, I want to ask you, like, why is it so difficult in Sweden, in, in your mind uh, or in your experience, to use the word race? Mm. I think it goes back to this, uh, uh, well, what we termed uh, uh, in, in our book, the white purity period. And that's the period when Sweden excelled in race science, in racial thinking, and was obsessed by its own super whiteness. Um, and, and that period, when uh, the leaving behind of that period, which went through, in a way, the bodies of the adoptees and later of the refugees, um, uh, I think demanded... A, a, a almost total tabuization of everything that had to do with race, including the very word itself. So uh, what most people don't know outside of Sweden is that Sweden became the first sovereign state in the world, actually, to abolish the word and the term race itself from official texts and legislative texts, etc., already from around 2000 and onwards. Yeah. And at that time, the word had already started to become taboo. Uh, so it's probably the strongest word that you can say uh, or utter if you're a Swedish speaker, I think. It's stronger than the, uh, the kind of sexual content word or, yeah, mm. I don't know, if you are religious, of course, you can get offended if you use certain words. But I think race is even stronger than that. 
I would have loved to be in the fly on the wall in that room because I can almost guarantee you this discussion, if we're going to abolish it, is being done in a completely <laughs> white room, right? So, so you yes. have these conversations yes, about yeah. how we feel. Yeah. It, it is so absurd to me that super intelligent, well-meaning people yeah. can actually take this incredibly important conversation without having the other side asking, hmm, am I out of line here? Does this make sense? And again, I, I, again, I mm -hmm. wasn't in the room, but I can almost guarantee you, we know what that rooms look like, dominated by men in their mm -hmm. 50s and not many people, not one person of color, I can guarantee you. If you ever sat around the dinner table at my father's house, uh, this is one of the things that he's most upset uh, about mm. in Sweden. And uh, specifically, the, what keeps coming up is, I think, is it in 2013 or 2017, where Sweden removes the word race from its uh, dim, uh, discrimination legislation. Yes. So from yes. official, from law. Mm. I think to my dad, now it becomes like almost a state-sanctioned invisibility you're, you're yeah. kind of legally made invisible in a sense. Yeah, and that's something that even the European Union has uh, harshly criticized Sweden for, including, mm. of course, the United Nations. So mm. what you refer to and what your father referred to is that uh, uh, Sweden has even abolished race as a ground for discrimination. So you can go to court if you want in Sweden if you are discriminated at, uh, against uh, according to... Uh, sex or gender or, or sexual orientation or disability, etc., etc., but not race anymore. But, but it's, it's also, I would say, a lot of things just comes out of guilt and out of things like, yep, we dealt with that, now let's move on. I would like to say that's probably not come from a bad place. They're just completely uneducated in the room. And, and this is wrong people taking those decisions. For example, one term that very often is used in Sweden is I'm colorblind. And I always like, don't be colorblind. Uh, we, we can learn a lot from speaking about each other's colors, backgrounds, ethnicities, because there's a lot to learn there. Do you know what I mean? And uh, the world isn't colorblind. So why should you say that you're colorblind? And, and I'll, I'll go back to huge Swedish companies, right? Like, let's take an H&M or a Spotify, for example. If it would have been a little bit more H&M, more connected to race and culture. You know, the decisions that it had a couple of years ago, you can just tell that the lack of diversity in a senior leadership even comes out in its advertisement. But it's important to talk about why these things are not good. It doesn't make people racist. If we don't know the why, how are we ever going to fix it? After the murder of George Floyd and the global movement for black lives that kind of reignited this uh, yes. racial awareness and this awareness for social issues among, well, not only young people, but just people across the globe. I started noticing in my life, uh, you know, from, from living in Sweden and kind of uh, having um, been a clear opponent and a vocal opponent of uh, the Sweden Democrats with through my music mm. and things that I've yes. said and written, very rarely being in the same room as them. But after the BLM movement went global, I noticed this kind of um, backlash against it, you know, mm. and, and 
I would read every day in, in some of the more conservative uh, newspapers, but also hear from people who kind of felt like, well, this identity politics has gone too far. Uh, mm. You know, we can't take sides with BLM because we, we don't want to uh, position ourselves politically. And I mean, it's a human rights issue. It's not a political issue at its, uh, in its core, but how have you in your work and in, you know, uh, from your perspective noticed uh, this backlash that, that... Yeah, I saw it too. So I know what, you, what you're referring to. And, mm-hmm. and there was a strong backlash. Uh, again, coming back to the Sweden Democrats, uh, they were actually spearheading this backlash. Uh, some, one thing that happened well, about two or three months after the murder of George Floyd, and the the uh, parliamentary group for the Sweden Democrats formed actually uh, an official uh, group in the parliament against uh, what they call in Swedish it is mm-hmm. anti-svenskhet uh, or it's wow pe- anti-Swedishness uh, reverse racist basically that's what they talked wow. about so it's racist wow. against white white Swedish people um, and they did that uh, as a response to the BLM movement. Uh, saying that now it's, I mean, th- this is not what I think, right? So they were basically saying that this is enough. We don't want this in Sweden. And when um, the BLM movement also came to Sweden, uh, uh, the Sweden Democrats basically said that uh, it's enough because nowadays it's us, white Swedes, who are the victims of racism. And that racism comes from minority youth in the suburbs, for example, etc., etc. Um, and so they formalized this group and you can do that if you sit in the parliament, you can form such a group on a formal level. So they have had a couple of seminars even on the subject of, yeah, reverse racism, basically. They capitalized on this backlash. Through the years with the work that you have uh, done with uh, um, well, both tracking down uh, Nazism in Sweden, uh, you know, um, political movements, Nazi roots and fascism. I mean, how has that affected you as far as your sense of security in Sweden? You know, I've been uh, around as a kind of a public anti-fascist for uh, it's more than 20 years. It's maybe 25 or even more like 30. Yeah, yeah, yeah. kind of uh, by now, uh, which means that and Sweden, is, it's a big country uh, area wise, but it's a small country still population wise. Right. So if you go around on the streets, so maybe not Stockholm, but smaller cities. Uh, I work, for example, in Karlstad uh, at the university there, which is a mid-sized city. So basically what I'm, I'm, I'm talking about is that uh, people recognize me uh, on the streets. Mm-hmm. And some people who do that are those mm-hmm. people that I have been yeah, politically against and are still politically against. So that is something which uh, I'm aware of. And now and then, people also come up to me and, and tell me that they belong to such movements. Uh, however, uh, luckily, I haven't uh, been physically attacked, but I have been shouted at, etc., etc. Uh, so, mm. yeah. Uh, but but uh, on on you ask me about the, the security aspect. Uh, frankly, it's it's difficult to have such a. I mean. If you're a public person, I think mm-hmm. it's the same with you, actually, Jason, right? Uh, it's difficult mm-hmm. to do something uh, other than... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah you, can, you can be careful now and then, of course, if yeah. in certain situations and in certain places in Sweden, but otherwise yeah. you have to live with it. 
Well, it's a reimagination of history and a reexamination of our history in this country, and to really uh, be to help all of us who live here and identify as Swedes to uh, accept uh, what our history actually is, and not just a polished, uh, 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 kind of whitewashed version of it. And so, yeah. From the bottom of our hearts, Tobias, thank you. Yeah, thank you, both of you. And I want to thank you also for what you are doing. <laughs> you are amazing people as well. Media platforms in Scandinavia, step up. Tobias is right here. We're ready to talk about our Swedish history from past, present, future. I'm excited what's going to come out of it. Thank you so much, Tobias, for coming on and wishing you all the best of luck. Uh, you know, we're all rooting for you and what you're doing is so important for all not only a, a BIPOC and people shout out Sweden, to but for Jason's father for finding the real talent and maybe <laughs> one day I think <laughs> Jason might be on the top three but not yet you're still <laughs> you're yet. Uh, briefly <laughs> briefly <laughs> I might pop up there but then I'll slide back down yeah maybe yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. thank you, you know, so thank Peace. you for coming on mm-hmm. thank you for inviting me yeah now in response to the hateful Quran burnings, we reached out to Tobias for an additional statement on the situation. And here's what he said. During Easter, as well as during Ramadan, a Danish far-right party leader named Rasmus Paludan got permission by the Swedish police to hold rallies in several impoverished neighborhoods, which are fully dominated by non-white and Muslim inhabitants, to hold meetings against Islam and burn a copy of the Quran in public. Paludan has arranged similar events in Denmark, but during recent years he has tried out this extreme act in Sweden with the sole purpose of provoking social unrest. During this Easter, Paludan also finally succeeded in doing that as a number of riots erupted in several Swedish cities as a result of his meetings, where he was protected by the police in the name of free speech. A number of policemen were hurt, and in one neighborhood, three persons were even hit by police bullets and ended up in hospital. The riots, which also reached the news around the world, are now widely seen as some of the worst in modern Swedish history. And the right-wing parties with the far-right party, the Sweden Democrats and the lead, have all exploited the events to the fullest extent by calling for harsh countermeasures. And the Sweden Democrats have even demanded that the family member of persons with a foreign background who are engaged in criminal activities should be deported from Sweden, according to the logics of collective punishment. There is now a great risk that the Easter riots, as they have become known, will influence the Swedish parliament election in September of this year, which is very worrisome as it would mean that the right-wing parties and the far-right party, the Sweden Democrats, will unfortunately most probably benefit from the riots and the election results, thereby risking to topple the current social democratic government, which has instead tried to say that social measures are needed to strengthen the youth of the neighborhoods, while at the same time, of course, also condemning the violence against the police. I'm so grateful that we got to have somebody like Tobias on the podcast, Marcus, because, you know, you look at it from an American context, there are academics, journalists, 
writers with huge platforms who, uh, in the thousands, who are talking about social justice issues, uh, anti-blackness, uh, 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 racism on a deeper level. And in Sweden, you know, Tobias is basically one out of maybe five, maximum ten. He's such a rarity. He's such a gem, you know, for us. And and. My only sadness about that is that there aren't more, but at least we have him. But that also goes to show how young the discussion, the awareness about these issues in Sweden is, the awareness of who we are. It's still so, we're so young in that. Sometimes to do this work in Sweden can be very lonely because you don't know necessarily where your support's going to come from. To our listeners, thank you for your continued support. Talk to you soon. Tell us about subject or people that we should be talking to right now. Hit us up on Instagram at this moment podcast and this moment podcast at gmail.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.